Race, class, and gender in Asian America. The slit-eyed, buck-toothed Jap thrusting his bayonet, thirsting for blood. The inscrutable, wily Chinese detective with his taped eyelids and wispy mustache. The childlike, indolent Filipino houseboy. Always giggling, bowing and scraping. Eager to please, but untrustworthy. The sexless, hairless Asian male. The servile, oversexed Asian female. The geisha. The sultry, sarong-clad, South Seas maiden. The serpentine, cunning dragon lady. Mysterious and evil, eager to please. Effeminate. Untrustworthy, yellow peril. Fortune cookie psychic. Savage. Dog-eater. Invisible. Mute. Faceless peasants breeding too many children. Gooks. Passive Japanese Americans obediently marching off to relocation camps during the Second World War. Jessica Hage Dorn, Charlie Chan is dead. As is evident from the stereotypes of Asian American men and women listed above, Representations of gender and sexuality figure strongly in the articulation of racism. Gender norms in the United States are premised upon the experiences of middle-class men and women of European origin. In the idealized American family, women are full-time homemakers and mothers, and men are the breadwinners. U.S. culture aligns these gender roles the breadmaker and the breadwinner, as complementary, ignoring the historical and political context of their constructions, and gliding over questions of power and conflict. This naturalized sexual division of labor engenders other sex-specific stereotypes. Men are independent, capable, and powerful, while women are dependent, ineffectual, and weak. As such, men become the protectors and women the protected. These Eurocentric constructed gender norms form a backdrop of expectations for American men and women of color, expectations which racism often precludes meeting. In general, men of color are viewed not as the protector, but rather the aggressor, a threat to white women and women of color are seen as over-sexualized and thus undeserving of the social and sexual protection accorded to white middle-class women. For Asian American men and women, their exclusion from white-based cultural notions of the masculine and the feminine has taken seemingly contrasting forms. Asian men have been cast as both hyper-masculine, the yellow peril, and effeminate, the model minority, and Asian women have been rendered both super feminine, the china doll, and castrating, the dragon lady. Dualisms, gender, race, and class. The problems of race, gender, and class are closely intertwined in the lives of Asian American men and women. It is racial and class oppression against yellows that restricts their material lives, redefines their gender roles, 
and provides material for degrading and exaggerated sexual representations of Asian men and women in U.S. popular culture. Asian Americans have always, but particularly since the 1960s, resisted race, class, and gender exploitation through political, economic, and cultural activism. As a result, the objectification of Asian Americans as the exotic alien, different from and inferior to white Americans, has never been absolute. On the other hand, in demanding legitimacy, some Asian Americans have adopted the either-or dichotomies of the dominant Eurocentric patriarchal structure, unwittingly upholding the criteria of those whom they assail. As an example, men who have been historically devalued are likely to take their rage and frustration out on those close to them, Having been forced into feminine subject positions, some Asian American men seek to reassert their masculinity by physically and emotionally abusing those who are even more powerless, the women and children in their families. In particular, men's inability to earn a family wage and subsequent reliance on their wives' income severely undermines their sense of well-being. Male unhappiness and helplessness can be detected in the following joke told at a Hmong family picnic. When we get on the plane to go back to Laos, the first thing we will do is beat up the women. The joke, which generated laughter from both men and women, drew upon a combination of the men's unemployability, the sudden economic value placed on women's work, and men's fear of losing power in their families. While it is useful to view male tyranny within the context of racial inequality and class exploitation, it is equally important to note that this aggression is informed by Eurocentric gender ideology particularly its emphasis on oppositional, dichotomous sex roles. The Asian American men who can only see race oppression and not gender domination are unable or unwilling to view themselves as both oppressed and oppressor. This dichotomous stance has led to the marginalization of Asian American women and their needs. Concerned with recuperating their identities as men and as Americans, some Asian American political and cultural workers have subordinated feminism to nationalist concerns. From this limited standpoint, they cast Asian American feminists who expose Asian American sexism as anti-ethnic, criticize them for undermining group solidarity and charge them with exaggerating the community's patriarchal structure to please the larger society. For example, when Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior received favorable reviews, writer Frank Chen accused her of attempting to cash in on the feminist fad. In an analysis of the display of machismo among Mexican immigrant men, Pierret Hondagno Sutoletto characterizes these men's behaviors 
as personally and collectively constructed performances of masculine gender display, which should be distinguished from structurally constituted positions of power. In other words, these displays of male prowess are indicators of marginalized and subordinated masculinities. The racist debasement of Asian men makes it difficult for Asian American women to balance the need to expose the problems of male privilege with a desire to unite with men to contest the overarching racial ideology that confines them both. As Asian American women negotiate this difficult feat, they, like men, tend to subscribe to the either-or dichotomous thinking. They do so when they adopt the fixed masculinist Asian American identity, even when it marginalizes their positions, or when they privilege women's concerns over men's or over other forms of inequality. Both of these positions advance the dichotomous stance of man or woman, gender or race or class, without recognizing the complex relationality that shapes our social and political lives. Finally, Asian American women enforce Eurocentric gender ideology when they accept the feminization of Asian men and its parallel construction of white men as the most desirable sexual and marital partners. Traditional white feminists have likewise succumbed to binary definitions and categories when they insist on the primacy of gender, thereby dismissing racism and other structures of oppression. The feminist mandate for gender solidarity accounts only for hierarchies between men and women and ignores power differentials among women, among men, and between white women and men of color. Exclusive focus on gender makes it difficult for white women to see the web of multiple oppressions that constrain the lives of most women of color, thus limiting the potential bondings among all women. It further bars them from recognizing the oppression of men of color, the fact that there are men, and not only women, who have been feminized, and the fact that white middle-class women hold cultural power and class power over certain groups of men. In sum, Asian American men, Asian American women, and white women unwittingly comply with the ideologies of racialized patriarchy. Asian American men fulfill traditional definitions of manhood when they conflate might and masculinity and sweep aside the needs and well-being of Asian American women. Asian American women accept these racialized gender ideologies when they submit to white and Asian men or when they subordinate racial, class, or male concerns to feminism. And white women advance a hierarchical agenda when they fail to see that the experiences of white women, women of color, and men of color are connected in systematic ways. Beyond dualisms, constructing an imagined community. 
A central task in feminist scholarship is to expose and dismantle the stereotypes that have traditionally provided ideological justifications for women's subordination. However, ideologies of manhood and womanhood have as much to do with class and race as they have to do with sex. Class and gender intersect when the culture of patriarchy, which assigns men to the public sphere and women to the private sphere, makes it possible for capitalists to exploit and profit from the labor of both men and women. Because patriarchy mandates that men be the breadwinner, it pressures them to work in the capitalist wage market, even in jobs that are low-paying, physically punishing, or without opportunities for upward mobility. In this sense, the sexual division of labor within the family produces a steady supply of male labor for the benefits of capital. The culture of patriarchy is also responsible for the capitalist exploitation of women. The assumption that women are not the main income earners in their families, and therefore can afford to work for less, provides ideological justification for employers to hire women at lower wages, to perform jobs in poorer working conditions than exist for men. On the other hand, in however limited a way, wage employment does allow women to challenge the confines and dictates of traditional patriarchal social relations. It affords women some opportunities to leave confines of the home, delay marriage and childbearing, develop new social networks, and exercise more personal independence. A Punjabi cannery worker said of her increased power within the family, Now my husband, he listens to me when I say something. When I want to buy something, I do. And when I want to go in the car, I go. As such, wage labor both oppresses and liberates women, exploiting them as workers, but also sharpening their claims against patriarchal authority. But this potential liberation is limited. As Linda Y.C. Lim points out, because capitalist employment and exploitation of female labor is based on patriarchal exploitation, the elimination of these conditions may well bring about an elimination of the jobs themselves. U.S. capital also profits from racism. In the pre-World War II era, white men were considered free labor and could take a variety of jobs as the industrialized economic sector, while Asian men were racialized as coolie labor and confined to non-unionized, degrading, low-paying jobs in the agricultural and service sectors. Asian immigrants faced a special disability. They could not become citizens and thus were a completely disenfranchised group. As non-citizens, Asian immigrants were subjected to especially onerous working conditions compared to other workers, including longer hours, lower wages, more physically demanding labor, more dangerous tasks, and so on. 
the alien and thus rightless status of Asian immigrants increased the ability of capital to control them. It also allowed employers to use the cheapness of Asian labor to undermine and discipline the white small producers and white workers. The post-1965 Asian immigrant group, though much more differentiated along social class lines, is still racialized and exploited. In all occupational sectors, Asian American men and women fare worse than their white counterparts. Unskilled and semi-skilled Asian immigrant laborers are relegated to the lower paying job brackets or racially segregated industries. Due to their gender, race, and non-citizen status, Asian immigrant women fare the worst because they are seen as being the most desperate for work at any wage. A white male production manager and hiring supervisor in a California Silicon Valley assembly shop discusses his formula for hiring. Three things I look for in hiring entry-level high-tech manufacturing operatives, small, foreign, and female. You find those three things and you're pretty much automatically guaranteed the right kind of workforce. These little foreign gals are grateful to be hired, very, very grateful, no matter what. The highly educated, on the other hand, encounter institutionalized economic and cultural racism that restricts their economic mobility. The experience of W.W. Tom, an electronics assembler, exemplify the lives of many under and misemployed professionals. Once a physicist in China, Tom came to the United States in 1976. Because of language barriers, she was unable to find work in her profession. Regarding her predicament and that of others like her, she said, We are all college graduates, but working in sewing or electronics factories. We have all taken a big step backwards in our profession or work but we are lucky to find work, any work that we can do. I would be happy if I could just advance myself at my present job one step up. I have thought about this constantly, the day when I can work at a desk using a pen and not have to do menial labor. In sum, capitalist exploitation of Asians has been possible mainly because Asian labor had already been categorized by a racist society as being worth less than white workers' labor. This racial hierarchy then confirms the manhood of white men while rendering Asian men impotent. Racist economic exploitation of Asian American men has had gender implications. Due to the men's inability to earn a family wage, Asian American women have had to engage in paid labor to make up the income discrepancies. In other words, the racialized exploitation of Asian American men has historically been the context for the entry of Asian American women into the labor force. Access to waged work and relative economic independence in turn 
has given women solid ground for questioning their subordination. But progress has been slow and uneven. In some instances, more egalitarian divisions of labor and control of domestic resources have emerged. In others, men's loss of status in the public and domestic spheres has placed severe pressures on the traditional family, leading at times to resentment, verbal or physical abuse, and divorce. Moreover, Asian women's ability to transform traditional patriarchy is often constrained by their social structural location in the dominant society. Their articulation between gender discrimination, racial discrimination against presumed or actual immigrant workers and capitalist exploitation makes their position particularly vulnerable. Constrained by these overlapping categories of oppression, Asian American women may accept certain components of the traditional patriarchal system in order to have a strong and intact family, an important source of support to sustain them in the work world. Indeed, in this hostile environment, the act of maintaining families is itself a form of resistance. Finally, women's economic resources have remained too meager to maintain their economic independence from men. Therefore, some Asian American women may choose to preserve the traditional family system, albeit in a tempered form, because they value the promise of male economic protection. As Evelyn Nakano Glenn points out, for Asian Americans, the family is simultaneously a unity bound by interdependence in the fight for survival and a segmented institution in which men and women struggled over power, resources, and labor. To recognize the interconnections of race, gender, and class is also to recognize that the conditions of our lives are connected to and shaped by the conditions of others' lives. Thus, men are privileged precisely because women are not, and whites are advantaged precisely because people of color are disadvantaged. In other words, both people of color and white people live racially structured lives. Both women's and men's lives are shaped by their gender, and all of our lives are influenced by the dictates of the patriarchal economy of U.S. society. But the intersections among these categories of repression mean that there are also hierarchies among women, among men, and that some women hold cultural and economic power over certain groups of men. On the other hand, the intersecting, contradictory, and cross-category functioning of U.S. culture also presents opportunities for transforming the existing hierarchical structure. If Asian men have been feminized in the United States, then they can best attest to and fight against patriarchal oppression that has long denied all women male privilege. If white women recognize that ideologies of womanhood have as much to do with race and class as they have to do with sex, then they can better work with, and not for, 
women and men of color. And if men and women of all social classes understand how capitalism distorts and lessens all people's lives, then they will be more apt to struggle together for a more equitable economic system. Thus, to name the categories of oppression and to identify their interconnections is also to explore, forge, and fortify cross-gender, cross-racial, and cross-class alliances. It is to construct what Chandra Mohanty calls an imagined community. A community that is bounded not only by color, race, gender, or class, but crucially by a shared struggle against all pervasive and system systemic forms of domination. Summer of my Korean soldier, Mary G. Lee. Being back home in Korea, the land where I was born, was, in a word, sucky. I had come here with this idea to learn Korean, and, in my off hours, search for my birth parents, who were waiting for me somewhere in Seoul. So far, though, all I'd met were a bunch of spoiled Korean-Americans, Chemikyopo, who were spending their parents' money like it was water. Korean classes weren't all that bad, but it was hard to be in a room full of kids who looked just like you and have the teacher ask, What's wrong with you? Why can't you learn this? You never heard it before? Actually, no, I said, and then the teacher, a well-meaning lady who sometimes got a little too excitable, looked really confused. Don't your parents speak Korean at home? No, I said, my parents are white. I'm adopted. And then she looked shocked and speechless. It was like all of a sudden she'd forgotten she was in the classroom to teach, to pound Korean into our brains. Do you consider these Americans to be your parents? She asked in amazement. Hey, I didn't know you were adopted, said Lee J. Kwon, otherwise known as Bernie Lee. No wonder your accent is so fucked up. That must be so weird coming back here. Yeah, it is, I said, and then I gave him a look that meant that I was done talking about this subject. Even in the beginner's class, Korean rolled off the tongues of the students so easily. There was only one other person who sounded like me. She was a nun, and from France, and had blue eyes. She had a visible excuse. Our teacher would often sigh impatiently, make that woeful ha sound at both of us. But at me, I saw her snatching secret looks, like you do through your fingers, at gory scenes in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 or something like that. It bothered me that people like Bernie Lee, who never did his homework, couldn't read or write Korean for beans, who thought the most important part of college was the opportunity to party, would always speak better Korean than me, and would always, while we were here in Korea, feel superior because he was more Korean than me, whatever that meant. The only Korean word I remembered from my childhood was the word for crap, merd, excrement. When I heard myself say it, it was the only word for which I had the perfect, clear, ringing pronunciation. Needless to say, I never had a chance to use it.
There was a time when I spoke better than everyone in the whole class, but those days are gone, and here I am marooned into this life, trying to make the best of it. I can't blame mom and dad for adopting me. They wanted a kid. And wouldn't it be nice if Mr. and Mrs. Jaspers took a kid out of some poor third world country? We'll name her Sarah, which means God's precious treasure, they said. Ever since I came here, I've had what's been labeled a bonding problem. It makes it sound like there's something wrong with my dental work. But what it really means is that I didn't bond with my parents the way I was supposed to. I found this out when I turned 18 and could finally access my file in the social worker's office. Frankly, I wasn't surprised. My earliest memories are of my mom and dad asking me if I loved them and of me wondering what I should answer. And then they became all panicky and eventually sent me to therapists and counselors all over town. Why do they call this a bonding problem? Maybe I'd already bonded with my folks in Korea and once was enough. I like my adoptive parents though I called them mom and dad, but I'm sorry, that's the best I could do for them. The best thing they could do for me was to live in an Adena neighborhood with only white people and their children, who would later go to school with me and call me things like chink and gook, and not include me in their games, their parties, their groups, their proms. Could anybody really blame me when I started staying in my room a lot, wearing black, getting my nose pierced at a head shop on Hennepin Avenue just because the spirit moved me. I'm a virgin though. Ha, huh, gotcha. God, I've got to find my real parents. They're waiting for me, and I know they feel as gut-wrenched about this as I do. You know what you need, my teacher said to me, is to do a language exchange with someone. An hour of English, an hour of Korean, a few times a week. It would improve your conversation. I looked at her and felt very sore. Every night, from the dorm's study room, I could see Bernie and the other kids going out, dressed to the teeth and jolly. Sometimes when I awoke at five to start studying, from my window I could see them getting out of elegant black taxis stumbling to the door, and then yelling in guttural Korean for the old ajushi to let them in, even though they'd broken curfew by a good six hours. I wanted to be able to answer her in Korean to say, I'll think about it, in polite, precise Korean, but of course I couldn't. I know a person named Kim Jun-ho, a friend of my younger brother's, He's at the university, although right now he's completing his time in the army. He wants to practice his English, and he would probably be a good teacher. Fine, fine, Gwen Chana, I said. More to get her off my back than anything. My eyelids felt sandy from staying up so late studying, and for the first time I thought of quitting. Maybe after I found my parents, I would. You don't need a language exchange, I said to Jun Hong Kim, who 
who sat across from me and drank celery juice, while I sipped at a ginseng tea that I tried in vain to sweeten with three packets of sugar. We were at the Balzac Cafe. The neighborhood near school was full of those trendy coffee juice bars that had the names of dead French authors, Flaubert, Rousseau, and around the corner, Proust. Junho seemed nice enough. He was tall, had short hair because of the army, he said. His English was perfect. He spoke with better grammar than half the kids I went to junior college with. No, no, he said modestly. I want to improve my conversation. I want to speak like an American. So in English, we talked about nuclear plants in North Korea, dead French writers, and stories he'd read in some old American newsweeks. For instance, he wanted to know how to pronounce Hillary and Chelsea. When it came time to switch to Korean, we talked about the weather and studying. I ran out of words in about 12 minutes. He then asked me about my family. Did I have brothers and sisters? What were my parents like? Even though he spoke wholly in Korean, I somehow recognized, but did not know, the words connected to family. I answered, substituting the English word for every Korean word I did not know, and basically ended up speaking in English. I told him how I was born in Korea, but hadn't ever been back until now. Are you sad? He asked. I shook my head. No, because my family is somewhere in Seoul and I'm going to find them. He nodded thoughtfully. I will help you if you want. Thank you, I said. I'll keep it in mind. Junho's face then folded in on itself like origami. It isn't, I'll keep it in my mind, he asked. No, it's not, I said. I don't know why, but the expression is, I'll keep it in mind. He laughed good-naturedly. I'll never learn English, it's too hard. He got up and paid the bill. The first time I called the orphanage, the person who answered the phone hung up on me. The second time, too. It wasn't necessarily that they were being rude, but they spoke in Korean to me. I spoke in English to them, and this went on for a number of minutes until the person at the orphanage hung up. It seemed to be a gentle, almost apologetic hanging up, though, as far as I could hear. When I saw Junho again, we went to the other side of the neighborhood, to the Kafka Coffee House. He asked me in English about our Secretary of State, Warren Christopher. It was lucky that I even recognized his name, much less knew anything about him. In the Korean hour, he talked about food. I had learned to order at restaurants and studying. Then he asked me how my search had been going. I asked him if he'd help me, and he said he would. We went to the closest payphone and he dialed the number. Soon he was talking in a continuous Korean from which I couldn't pick out any words. He looked at the piece of paper on which I'd scribbled my full name, as well as the Korean one that had been given to me at the orphanage, Lee Soon Min.
He talked and talked. The longer he talked, the more hopeful I became. Obviously, the key to everything must be at the orphanage. Finally, he hung up. What happened? Excitement was flowing out of every pore. They cannot tell me anything over the phone. Huh? I said. What do you talk about? How to get to the orphanage, that kind of thing, he said. Can we go now? I made an appointment for two weeks. That is the soonest someone can see you. I sighed. My family was going to have to wait again. It seemed unfair, but after waiting for so long, I guess I'd have to do it. I'd also have to tough out at least another two weeks of this stupid Korean language school, when what I really wanted to do was just take off, live with them, eat Korean food, and sleep in a Korean bed. I was sure my Korean would come back to me naturally. I admit I was starting to feel impatient. The next time I met Junho, he had his army uniform on, and he was also driving a car. How about if we do something different, he said, opening the door. I slid in. He grinned at me. Unlike the poker-faced seriousness of a lot of Korean men I'd seen, Jun had a dash of mischievousness, a kind of sparkle that flashed at you like summer lightning. Where you can't quite tell if you've actually seen it, or if you've blinked or something. He pulled into the vortex of Seoul traffic as he explained that he'd borrowed a car from his friend so he could show me around a little bit. I was suddenly aware that I'd seen very little of Seoul besides the immediate neighborhood of the school, so I sat back, pleased. Next week is the orphanage, I said. You'll come with me, right? He cracked another grin at me. Right now we will have fun, he said. We will only talk about fun things. Okay, later, I said agreeably. I wondered if things would be different when I could speak Korean. Would there be things I could say that I couldn't before? We went to the 63 building. It's called that because it has 63 floors, or it's supposed to. I didn't count. The top floor has an observation tower. We got lucky because during the humid summer, the city is pretty much always obscured by industrial smog. It had been raining the last few days, and today the air was mountain clear. The observatory was a whole floor, and you could walk all around it. Having been mostly on the ground, between tall buildings, I'd forgotten about the mountains rising across, rising along the sides of the city. Now they loomed in all their majesty, forming a ring around the city. When I'd flown in and seen those mountains, so familiar somehow, so much like home, I'd started crying. I leaned and looked out for a long time. Somewhere out there was my family. On what side of the Han River would they live? Would they be rich? Poor? I thought of how each ticking of the clock brought me closer to them, and I felt happy. At the souvenir shop there, Junho brought me a pair of figures that looked like warped, demented totem poles. 
At the top, each one had a monster head. It was not pretty to look at. Junho said that these were miniature versions of ones people used to erect outside their villages to scare the demons away. Will it scare my demons away? I asked. It might, he said. We stepped into the elevator where a young woman bowed mechanically to us before pressing a white-gloved hand to the button for the lobby. You couldn't feel any motion in the elevator as it descended. When the doors opened and the familiar lobby scene appeared, I felt like I'd been beamed in from another planet. The day for my appointment came, but before we went, Junho sat us down at the Kafka. The orphanage had very little information, he warned me. They wouldn't be able to help me find my family. I jumped up, wanting to hit him. What nonsense was he talking about? He talked so long on the phone, made an appointment for me. Sarah, he said, there was no news. He'd made the appointment for two weeks, hence, in hopes that perhaps I'd give up on my own. It's better this way, he said. Perhaps better for your family. How could that be, I yelled. My family is waiting for me. You're like all the rest, keeping me from them. I think that's when I collapsed back into my chair, sobbing. I think I might have knocked over the sugar bowl, too. Koreans don't show their emotions, especially not in public. What a crazy foreigner, they were probably thinking. We'll go, Junho said. He took my hand and we caught a taxi. The orphanage was filled with babies. There were loud, shrill cries, the smell of unwashed baby bottoms. The heat pressed down on my shoulders almost unbearably. But this was my last hope. I had to push on. A woman in a severely tailored Western-style suit met us. Junho told her who I was and handed her a letter of introduction from the social services agency in the States. She stared at me hard, as if trying to make the connection between me and those squalling babies. I told her you want to see your file, Junho explained. I leaned into him gratefully. There was always that hope, I was thinking. Something undiscovered in that file. She brought out a file folder that had a few sheets of paper filled with single-spaced Korean writing. My heart jumped. There had to be something in there. Please read it to me, Junho, I said. Read every word. Junho scanned the page, then looked up. Sarah, it doesn't say much. It just says about your eating habits and so forth. Read it to me, I said, desperation beginning to crawl up my back. Promise me you won't leave anything out. My whole Korean life lay among those spidering, interlocking symbols. Junho looked at me again. His eyes were so black they were liquid. He lowered his head and began to read. A newborn baby girl was found on the steps of the Ho-Dong fire station on July 12, 1974. 
There was no note attached or any other kind of correspondence indicating any relatives. Junho paused, but I urged him on. The baby was found covered with feces. Dong, I was thinking. I know that word. The baby. I was that baby. The baby appears to have been born in a toilet or some kind of commode. Cleaned her up. A name of Lee Soon Min was given. Placed in foster care. Was adopted by an American couple, Sue and Ken Jaspers. I couldn't see anymore. It was like the day I stood behind a waterfall and tried to look out at the lake. Minnesota had more than 10,000 lakes. Today was July 12th. It's my birthday, I mumbled. Junho took my hand. He was leading me back to a cab. He barked directions to the driver, a large oily man who looked back at me, my tears, and some stray hairs clogging my mouth. Junho barked something else, and he started the car. Where are we going? I surprised myself by speaking in Korean. Junho only smiled and gave my hand a squeeze. Home, he said. Out the window, the rows of tiny stores were pressed together so tightly that they looked like one continuous riggedy storefront, save for the different signs in Korean writing each had in front of it. As the taxi picked up speed, the signs began to blur.